This is 1 Kings 18, 41 through 45. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is a sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, Lord, so each, each and every time we open your word, we also just open up our hearts to you. We ask that this ancient story would be a living story as you promised that it is, that we would hear not a reflection on something that you did thousands of years ago, but an invitation to something that you're longing to do, maybe even in and through someone like me. Would that be how we hear your story today? So come, Holy Spirit, we need your help with that. Come, Jesus, and show us this living picture in a way that we can walk into. And Father, would you assure us of your love and your promises to us that always outrun our mistakes, our failure, our, our pain, our past, our wounds, everything. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. D.L. Moody was born one of nine children to a single mother struggling to keep food on the table. He had no education beyond the fifth grade. He made ends meet through becoming a shoe salesman as a teenager, and then at 17, he came to faith. He would go on to travel the world, drawing crowds as large as 30,000 to hear him preach. Many, to this day, consider him to be the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. Now, we've grown accustomed these days in the church to witnessing swells in salvation, meaning the lost being found, the outsider coming in, neighbors and strangers finding themselves within the family of Jesus through some type of innovation, right? A new strategy or technique comes along, something like the Jesus film or the Alpha Course or a weekend revival effort or a church-sponsored short-term missions trip. And that tool then spearheads a surge in new life. There's usually a novel method of some kind at the center of why evangelism is suddenly working, for lack of a better term, in this place or at this time. And Moody's life is a compelling contradiction to that rule. His entire strategy was prayer. As the story goes, even within his personal life, outside of his public ministry, he carried a list of 100 names in his pocket every day of his adult life, 100 friends that he was in proximate relationship with who were outside of that same proximate relationship with Jesus. And so he would plead daily, God, would you communicate your pursuing love to this person and this person and this person and this person in a language that they can receive? Daily, he prayed for salvation for his lost friends and family. When he died, 96 of the names on that list had become answered prayers. It's not bad, 96% success rate. It gets better than that. At Moody's funeral, the four remaining names were all in attendance. All were so moved by the reflection of his life that at his memorial service, all four independently chose to leave everything else behind and follow Jesus. So just for the record, how on earth did a shoe salesman with a fifth grade education become one of the most influential evangelists in church history? 
prayer. Everyone I know, myself included, has a low success rate in praying for the lost. Everyone I know, myself included, has low stamina in prayer for the lost. And then we get inspired by a story like Moody's, make a list of our own, carry it around in our pocket for a number of days, maybe even a number of weeks before the ordinary mundanity and more urgent demands drown that out and the list that we thought we'd carry to our memorial service is discarded within a matter of days. But what Moody's life and Elijah's story both tell us is this, there is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. And that is the big idea for today. So we're in a vision series uh, called A House of Prayer for All Nations, a biblical phrase that joins together prayer and justice. And currently we're zeroing in on prayer. And we began with a picture, raise up the tabernacle of David, and then took a quick turn into the very practical, talking last week about recovering the early church daily prayer rhythm. Now if you missed last week's teaching, you do need to go back and get it, or else the next three weeks aren't going to make sense. Because over the next three weeks, we're taking those rhythms, morning, midday, and evening prayer, one at a time. So next week, Pete Gregg is going to be with us teaching on morning prayer. He wrote a whole book on praying the Lord's Prayer, so it seemed fitting that we would go out of order so that he could take that one. And by the way, those of you who are parents in the room, uh, he's just releasing an updated version of his book, How to Pray for Kids, uh, specifically targeting kids ages eight to 11. So we're gonna be doing a workshop for parents and kids ages seven and up after our 11 a.m. worship gathering next week where Pete will speak to both kids and parents about the topic of prayer. I can't wait as a father, so just wanna invite you as well so that you know that's coming. So anyway, that's next week. The following Sunday after that, we'll teach on praying gratitude in the evening, and that means that up for today, is the midday rhythm of praying for the lost. But if we're gonna get anywhere today together, we're gonna to have to define a couple of terms first. So first, I know that it is horrifically out of style to speak of anyone as lost. Uh, to some, that's got the ring of superiority to it, maybe even of some type of savior complex, but I think it's language that's worth redeeming. And the reason for that is because there's words that are common today in the church, like evangelism, that send the chill down the spine of some believers. And that's because we live in a culture that is very suspicious of salesmanship and very thirsty for authenticity. And so we hear a word like that and it rings of sales tactics. So if, if a word like evangelism is a difficult speed bump for you, then just throw it out and pick a different word. It's a word that never appears anywhere on the pages of scripture, but it's just come about throughout church history. Choose a different word and keep going. Lost, though, is in a different category. Lost is not church language. It's Jesus language. And therefore, I think it's worth redeeming. I mean, personally, I find it really helpful that Jesus uses the word lost as his preferred term to describe those who are outside of relationship with him. Lost, meaning searching for home, for safety, for rest, but not sure where to go. Lost is that frantic feeling that runs around in your gut when you thought for sure you knew where you were going and then suddenly you realize you don't know where you're going and you don't know the way back to where you came from to start over and you don't know where the way forward to comfort and safety and rest either. Lost is a word of compassion, not one of categorization or condemnation or superiority. And that is how Jesus described life outside of relationship to him, lost. Not at fault, just looking for home and not sure which direction leads there. 
And I also know how terribly unfashionable it is to speak of salvation through the metaphor of new birth or new life. Uh, some uh, guy with a bullhorn downtown has made that a bad look for every last one of us, right? But again, this is Jesus' language taken right off his lips in John chapter three, and it's a central biblical metaphor for what it means to begin the life and life to the full that Jesus promised us. And in Elijah's story, it's imagery for the kind of prayer that invites the good shepherd to go seeking and saving those who are lost that they might taste this life. There is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. That's where we're headed. But to get there, we're gonna retrace Elijah's steps. So I'm gonna give you his story in three scenes. Scene one, the church on fire. Now, for context, Israel's forgotten God. They tend to do that. The Old Testament pattern is that of an Israel who looks to Yahweh in times of desperation, and then he hears and responds. When their prayer is answered, though, that desperation is often replaced by comfort, and they tend to put their trust in something more tangible and more predictable, something that requires less faith. In Elijah's time, trust is vested in a king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who led Israel away from Yahweh and into idol worship of a false god named Baal. And in a moment of extraordinary courage, Elijah says, not on my watch. So he approaches King Ahab with this challenge. Look, I'm one prophet of Yahweh. There's 450 prophets of Baal. So let's set up a sacrifice with two altars, one altar to Yahweh, the other to Baal. Put a bull on each altar so that they're ready for worship. This was a common expression of worship to uh, of worship of all sorts of gods in the ancient Near Eastern world. But let's not set fire to the sacrifice. Instead, let's pray and see whose God miraculously sends fire from heaven. That God is the one true God. Now historically, this isn't quite as random as it might seem when we read it today. In ancient Mesopotamia, Baal was considered the God of the skies and was often portrayed as a bull or with a lightning bolt in his hands. So calling down fire from heaven should have been in the bag for him. Uh, and since he was portrayed as a bull, Elijah is telling the people to let their God of the skies with the power to send fire defend his own image, which is lying here on the altar. At the same time, he is setting up another altar and saying, and I'm going to give the opportunity for Yahweh to show that he is still today the God of the Exodus who delivers and leads his people to safety, rest, and promise. Now you have to admit, this does sound intriguing. I mean, regardless of which side of the equation you're on here, people rarely just put themselves out there like this. So Ahab says, sure, let's go for it. The sacrifices are then set up, word spreads, a massive crowd gathers. The 450 prophets of Baal go first. They pray, nothing happens. So they grow more intense in their prayer, shouting, dancing, screaming, nothing happens. So they begin to mutilate their bodies, harming themselves in prayer to try to get their God's attention. Nothing happens. They go on like this for hours, much of the afternoon, and nothing happens. These prophets exhaust themselves. And then it's Elijah's turn. Then Elijah said to all the people, this is 1 Kings 18, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. So before praying, Elijah walks over to the old altar of Yahweh, the one that was torn down in the name of worship to a false god, and repairs it as it used to be. That's significant. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Now on the surface, this seems impressive because wet wood is obviously more difficult to burn. 
right? If you're planning on praying something would catch on fire, soaking it first is a bold move. <laughs> but that's not the point of what he's doing. Elijah's not Houdini setting up a magic trick. He's a worshiper preparing to pray. Here's the point. Israel's in the midst of a three-year drought. It has not rained in the nation of Israel for a thousand days. Now that would be limiting today. That would limit agriculture, it would encourage wildfires, it would alter our ecosystem in a way that was troubling. But in an agrarian society without a sophisticated trade system between nations? This is economically devastating. The people are starving to death and the, those in political power or a change in policy can't do anything about it. Now in the midst of a drought, what is the most prized possession? Water, nailed it, you people are going places, I love it. They need water. In the meantime, conventional wisdom would dictate conserve as much water as possible, limit bathing, drink only what you have to, save it for the crops. Water is the most limited resource and the most prized possession during a drought, and that means that water is the most costly offering Elijah could possibly bring. So he places not only his own reputation before God and these crowds, he places his livelihood, the security of his future, before God and these crowds. The most profound act of worship occurred before Elijah uttered a single word of prayer when he brought the most precious national commodity and poured it out on the wood that he was about to pray that God would light. The words of David echo over the scene, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And then Elijah says, now do it again. And just for good measure, pour a third cistern over the water. He's offering to God the most lavish sacrifice possible. And that's significant. Finally, he prays, answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up water from the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now take in all that's just happened. Uh, Elijah repaired the altar here, so worship is restored. People that were worshiping all sorts of things a few minutes ago, money, success, their body, someone else's body, they now turn their worship back to Yahweh. Elijah poured out water, which was not just precious to him, but precious to everyone who was gathered in the crowd. If you read the story closely, you'll notice that it was not Elijah who picked up the cisterns and poured the water. He instructed people in the crowd to do it. What that means is that people who gathered as spectators, Elijah made participants in the worship. Next, God's presence becomes obvious. There's fire where a minute ago there was nothing but wet wood and red meat. And then the people turn to God. People who helped tear down the altar of Yahweh are now face down crying out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is that friend or coworker or family member you perceive to be furthest from God. The one you don't even bother praying for or consider inviting. Uh, the one before whom you actively avoid the faith subject altogether. This is that person standing next to you on an otherwise sleepy Sunday morning. And as we begin to sing, they fall face down and begin to cry out, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Can you imagine beholding something like that? A visible manifestation of God's presence, followed by those who are utterly disinterested in Him, calling out to Him in desperation by name. If that happened today in this church service, I imagine you would leave pleasantly surprised by your church experience. 
it does seem fair to say that the church just caught fire. But that's not the end. It's the beginning. And now I'm going to say something that will probably surprise you at first. God does not dream of the church on fire. And this is not the climactic moment in Elijah's story. It'll make more sense if you know the end, so I'm just going to skip right to, the, to scene three, and then we'll come back for the middle part. Let's skip to the end. Scene three, the city reborn. Look with me back at your Bibles, 1 Kings 18. I'm going to begin in verse 41, exactly where we began reading our teaching text. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. Now, it's worth keeping in mind here that Elijah is a prophet speaking to a political leader, the national leader of a starving people. The economy's collapsed, the people have suffered, and criticism has certainly come knocking at the palace door. And then Elijah locks eyes with that king and says confidently in the midst of that drought, go home and celebrate. Slaughter the fattened calf, uh, fire up the grill, uncork that bottle you've been saving because God's about to give you reason for celebration. The God you saw just light up the altar is about to send a downpour of rain on the whole city. Back to the text. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. So three years into a drought, there's a massive downpour on the whole city, there's celebration in the streets, there's new life given to a depressed place. That is the climactic moment in Elijah's story. Because God does not dream of the church on fire. God dreams of the city reborn. God's dream uh, for Portland is not that Bridgetown would become an awesome church with packed out Sunday gatherings and, and above average midweek programming. God dreams of pouring out his presence on the entire city. God is jealous. He's jealous for relationship. He is longing for intimate, relational, eternal connection with every last soul because he knit everyone together uniquely. God is jealously longing for the whole of the city. Abraham Kuyper says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God dreams of the city reborn. And what Elijah's story tells us is that that starts with a church on fire, but that's the beginning of the story, not the destination. The destination is a city reborn, and every journey worth taking begins with an origin point and a destination, and we can't confuse the two. A church on fire is the vehicle that gets us to God's true longing. God does not dream of a select group of people within his creation that really, 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 really like him. He dreams of pouring out his presence on the whole city. And there is an inseparable connection between a church on fire and a city reborn. But one does not just lead seamlessly to the other. There's quite a big detour between the two. I skipped a scene, remember? So let's now go back to the middle to scene two, the mountain of prayer. Elijah sends the king off to pray for rain and then he does what? Look with me back at our teaching text one more time. I'm going to start in verse 42. 
So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. So Elijah sends the king off to prepare for rain, and then he does what? He climbs a mountain and begins to pray. He hikes to the peak, he's overlooking a city that is in absolute desperation, and then he prays like this, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. That's an odd posture for prayer, right? Frequently in the Hebrew scriptures, we, we see people falling down, prostrate on their faces in prayer. Often we're instructed to stand and raise our hands in prayer. Sometimes people even kneel down to pray to God, but Elijah bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> Might have tweaked something in the most public way possible. Here's just a tip for reading the scripture. Whenever you come across a detail that seems superfluous, superfluous, like it doesn't have to be there, pay close attention. Because in my experience, the Bible is a book that has no unnecessary details. It's a book that doesn't tell me as much as I would like to most of the time. It's written like someone's trying to keep up uh, rather than like someone is revising and revising and revising to get to a final draft like a novelist would. Like, for instance, the scripture says here, then God sent fire down from heaven. There's a lot there I'd like to know, right? Like, what if Hemingway wrote that? Wouldn't it sound something more like, then the flames danced across the splintered oak, like someone had just turned on the cha-cha slide at a wedding reception filled with white people? <laughs> you know, something like that. I'm sorry, that was off the cuff. Man, sticks in script. All right, so... Elijah bent down and put his face between his knees. That should get our attention. And scholars will point out that to pray for the city, Elijah metaphorically gets into the position of a woman in labor beginning to push. I know, it's graphic. Later in the New Testament, the New Testament writer James will refer to this very prayer in this very event, calling it fervent or effectual prayer. Within the black church throughout America, where this kind of prayer has been central for generations, it's often referred to as travail, a long-suffering kind of prayer that always has its eyes firmly fixed on a hope that is yet to come. Among other traditions, it's often called contending prayer. Whatever you call it, here's the point. There is a kind of prayer that gives birth to new life. And this is the kind of prayer that God loves to answer, prayers for new life, prayers for the Father to draw the lost to himself, prayer for the good shepherd to go and seek and save the lost, prayers for the Spirit to give rebirth into the fullest kind of life to, to those who are at the end of their rope and those who think they've already found this kind of life and old men who have looked for it everywhere else and still not found it and those who are just aimlessly wandering, distracted along a journey without a clear destination. God loves to answer prayers for the lost to be found found. And I've been thinking so much about my grandfather these last couple of weeks because he is right at the end, hanging by a thread. And a combination of age and dementia and a recent brain bleed has him in a state where it could be any day. And he is a generational hinge point in my family. He chose to follow Jesus, and that changed my family's story. And so I'm constantly aware that every time I stand and talk about Jesus, it's his shoulders that I'm standing on. 
And this weekend, I couldn't help but think about him and think, there's so many moments I can go back to that I shared with him, but there's also so many moments I've never seen, so many hidden prayers that he must have prayed for me over the years. And one day I'll be with him in eternity and I'll behold all those hidden moments that I never saw that somehow collectively gave me this life that I would trade everything for, that I would say like, David, your love, O oh Lord, is better than life. It's almost like uh, I'm living in the wake of his prayers. Whose prayers are you living in the wake of? And who might live in the wake of yours? God doesn't only dream of the church on fire. God dreams of the city reborn. A mountain of prayer is the only way from one to the other. But if you choose to ascend this mountain of prayer that Elijah climbed, proceed with caution. Because now I'm going to tell you a couple things that you probably already know by experience. And it's this. Prayer for the lost is slow and unglamorous. Right? Prayer for the lost is slow. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah prayed for fire once. He prayed for rain seven times. The sort of prayer that gives birth to new life is slow. This is that friend that, that you've been longing to see come into the faith, and then you had that one conversation where it seemed like there was an opening, and, and you got excited, and, and you prayed, but nothing and prayed nothing, prayed nothing, prayed nothing, prayed nothing, prayed nothing, prayed something. Something small, but it's something. And that's assuming that you have the same sort of power in prayer as a prophet who just ripped fire out of the clouds. <laughs> My oldest son, Hank, was born in a hospital house birthing center in lower Manhattan. And if you're unfamiliar, a birth center is essentially like a, an average hotel room that they've placed right into the middle of a hospital, where instead of the medical jargon and the frantic nurses and the busy labor, labor and delivery doctors that are often associated with hospital birth, birthing centers, you get to interact with midwives. <laughs> Typically, the baggy hemp-wearing, chamomile tea-sipping, whispering variety just to paint a picture. Eight hours into labor, there was some slight discomfort that had set in. Kirsten was absolutely agonizing. I was growing hungry, slight discomfort. <laughs> it was at this precise moment in the labor that I walked across the room to the mini-fridge where I strategically stashed a foot-long Italian sub eight hours prior. Genius. <laughs> Removed it from the fridge, unwrapped it, went to take the first bite, and when I heard what sounded like the voice of a Pixar-animated dragon calling to me from the other side of the room, what is that smell? <laughs> it was at that precise moment I knew my discomfort was here to stay. <laughs> 10 hours into the labor, the midwife says, Kirsten, you ready to have this baby? She was encouraged, I was ecstatic. I knew the bread would be soggy by now, but the sandwich was still salvageable. <laughs> it would be eight more hours before we met Hank. She labored and labored and labored. And during those long hours, Kirsten experienced more pain than she ever has before. There is no human feat that compares with the courage of a mother-to-be in labor. And Kirsten had moments where she thought it was time, but there was still a long way to go. 
She had points where she thought that she would give up, but kept on going anyway. More than once, she said to anyone who might be listening, I am never doing this again. <laughs> and then we met Hank. And a week after that 18-hour birth, no exaggeration on this timeline, she said, Tyler, I think I want to have another baby. <laughs> it was like all the worst moments from that labor were washed away in the joy of this new life. Because whatever she had went through, this guy, this little guy who so far had only caused her excruciating, incomparable pain, greatly disrupted her sleep patterns and promised to be wildly dependent on her, potentially forever, this little guy was so worth it. And Jesus said that's what the kingdom is like. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has brought into the world. See, Jesus said that new life, it often requires labor, laboring in prayer, but the joy of salvation so far outweighs the labor that you can't even compare the two. Plenty of people have been inspired by Moody's list of 100. Far fewer people have still been praying when the inspiration wore off. And if you want that kind of legacy, you have to labor with that kind of life. So prayer for the lost is slow, and then prayer for the lost is unglamorous. I mean, calling down fire from heaven, that was a spectacle. Praying downpour on the city, though, that was hidden and secret and won no public praise or admiration. And it is the secret labor of prayer, not the public spectacle of fire, that Jesus tells us to imitate. There is this one moment, one moment in the Gospels where the disciples seem interested in reenacting Elijah's fire spectacle. It's in Luke chapter 9. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. It's like a firm and straightforward, nope. John wants Elijah's spectacle. Jesus wants Elijah's prayer. It is the secret, unglamorous part of Elijah's life that we are biblically instructed to imitate and make our own. James chapter five. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. See, we've got an appetite for spectacle. God has an appetite for new life. We can't resist public spectacle. God can't resist hidden, laborious prayer. Plenty of people would say, I want to be there when the fire falls. I want to see revival bring on the signs and wonders. Far fewer people will be found in the hidden labor of prayer because it's not glamorous, but it is powerful and effective. So can I just speak honestly into this moment in this community? I see the early signs of renewal here. I mean, there's a growing expression of worship. We're repairing the altar. And, and I see costly sacrifice to, to say no to other things, to come before God, like, like pouring water over the sacrifice. And, and it's such that it's not being led by a few. It, we're all participants, not spectators. It sparks all over the place. Uh, this church is alive. In the language of Elijah, the church is on fire. And all of those sparks just mean this. It is time. 
It is time to ascend the mountain of prayer. It is time to be found in the secret place. It is time for the real work of the kingdom to be done in the hidden place, not the the public place. And the unglamorous work, not in the spectacle. It's time. God dreams of the church on fire because God dreams of the city reborn. So here is the pattern that you see biblically and historically Every time there's a renewal in a place in the name of Jesus, the church catches fire, followed by an increased priority of prayer, which is followed by an outpouring of the Spirit's presence and power on a whole city. You do not get to jump from scene one to scene three. We must walk through scene two, and we must do it together. What stands between a church that's alive and a downpour on the city? It's a mountain of prayer. So is there a practice to get that into my life as a stay-at-home parent or as a traveling executive or as a student or as someone who works three hourly jobs with no predictable rhythm to my life at all or as a single mom who's just trying to piece things and hold things together? Yes. Written into the Bridgetown Daily Prayer Rhythm is our practice. Pause to pray at midday for the lost. And when I say that, I don't mean pause to pray for the abstract idea of people. I mean to pray for specific people, for names and faces that you're immersed in relationship with. Pause to pray for them every day at midday, for 30 seconds or for a few minutes or for an hour. It's not about duration. It is about rhythm. This is about cultivating a sustainable rhythm where the blur of our everyday is interrupted and interrupted and interrupted by communion with Jesus until communion with Jesus begins to order the blur of our day. Uh, So it's not about duration. It doesn't matter how long you pause to pray. What matters is that you develop a rhythm of pausing to pray. And that was the practice in our communities last week. And remember, it's an ongoing practice, this ancient new daily prayer rhythm that we hope will guard our hearts and guide our lives for the days to come. And as a tool to help you as you attempt to cultivate that new habit or rhythm and work it into your life, uh, we've partnered with 24-7 Prayer for this app called Inner Room, which you can download right now wherever it is that you get your apps. But why midday? Why stop right in the middle of the day for the contending, travailing, birthing sort of prayer? Is there anything significant about that? In John chapter four, we meet Jesus at that precise point in the day. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by a well, it was about noon, John four, six. In the morning, good intentions and positive willpower are at their absolute height, but by midday, I mean, you're zoning out at your desk, mindlessly scrolling devices, we set our sights on the evening's rest, we begin to scheme and plan. The friends will meet up for tonight's happy hour or what we'll have for dinner or the show we'll watch while we veg out on the couch. At the midpoint of each day, the human propensity to escape is at its highest. We will escape the present for almost any distraction. Uh, The human tendency to spiral into the self, to turn inward, to focus on myself is at its highest. All the way back in the fourth century of Agrius, who was one of the most well-known of the church desert fathers, named this tendency at the midpoint of the day the noonday demon. And so here sits the Alpha and the Omega himself, feeling the pull of the escape, that subtle pull to zone out, to be distracted, to plan some preferred future that's better than the present moment. How did Jesus combat that pull? He struck up a conversation with the Samaritan woman. 
You see, when the flesh pulls inward toward the self, the spirit pushes outward in compassion. And at the midpoint of each day, we have the opportunity to train ourselves to turn inward to the self or to counterintuitively push outward in compassion. So maybe you imagine this woman at the well moment is just the overflow of the unconscious compassion of Jesus' heart. And it really could be that. There's no way for us to know for sure. Some writers, though, imagine that Jesus is taking action of compassion in spite of his worn-down resolve and his low emotional bandwidth, that this is less the unconscious overflow, and it is more a conscious counterintuitive choice that he's making. Again, there's no way to know for sure, but the picture that the Apostle John paints does seem to lean more toward that interpretation. And what is the result? The result is new life. New life in the unlikely candidate of this Samaritan woman and the new life in the entire village she calls home. A city is reborn. Jesus' disciples then come back with his takeout order. The one that he was too tired to walk with them to go and get. And Jesus says something confusing. He, he says, I, I'm not hungry anymore. He says it this way, actually. I have food to eat you know nothing about. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus is renewed at a soul level by the counterintuitive compassion chosen at midday. Prayer for the lost at midday does two things. It offers the bread of life to those who are hungry and don't even know it, and it satisfies my soul on the bread of life that I'm most hungry for, masked underneath the temptation to distract and escape. So what stands between a church on fire and a downpour of living water on a city? It's a mountain of prayer, and the way to, to engage that is as simple as an intentional interruption to the midpoint of your day to labor in prayer alongside the groaning of the Spirit for the lost. Now I wanna end today with a picture. In the book of Ezra, after 70 years of slavery in a foreign land, Israel is finally released to go back to Jerusalem. The city's been ransacked, it's nothing but ashes and rubble, and so they begin to rebuild their home, and just like Elijah, they start with the altar. So they begin to rebuild the temple, and they lay the foundation, and before they put pews in, or set up the inner room, or even raise the walls, there's nothing but a bare concrete slab foundation, the entire nation gathers there for worship to commemorate the new foundation for worship they've set. And what comes out of them is the worship of those who have waited 70 years, a lifetime or two for this moment, to worship this God in this way, back in this place. Ezra describes the worship like this. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people had made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. The shouts of joy, that's obvious, right? Of course there's joy. They've waited so long for this moment, but why the weeping? Why is the older generation weeping? Scholars posit a number of reasons, but they seem to be united on this one. They're weeping over who's missing. They're weeping over those who didn't live long enough to see this day or those who didn't want it bad enough to make the trek back from Babylon to be with them at this moment. They're weeping over who should be here but who is not. They're weeping because this moment of worship is incomplete without his voice or her voice joining with mine in my ear. We gather to worship every Sunday 
and a shout of joy goes up from this place, but do we weep? Do we weep over who's missing? Do we weep over the coworker that you've never thought to invite? Do we weep over the family member that would have been interested by now if they were gonna be interested at all? Do we weep over the neighbor who's an acquaintance to us and nothing more and we never consider that the spirit might be as active there as in the moment of response at the front of the stage? Do we weep over the voice who's missing? I hear the sound of heavy rain. I hear the sound of heavy rain. And it's the sound of joy and weeping mixing together in a chorus of love, loud and indistinguishable. That's the sound of an outpouring on a whole city.